Webster's Dictionary defines enigma as an inscrutable or mysterious person or something hard to understand or explain. Ooh, does that mean we're doing Enigma's album this week? No, we will not be discussing MCMXC, Enigma's seminal 1990 hit record today. Instead, we will be discussing Tori Amos's 1992 debut album, Little Earthquakes. Amos is an enigma, as is her music. While catchy and infectious, it has always been difficult to stick Tori's music into a specific genre. It is mysterious, it is hard to explain, and as a music nerd, it is even hard to understand sometimes. Yet this record, along with Under the Pink, created a legacy for Tori Amos that lives on to this day. Of the not-so-many-female singer-songwriters to come out of the 90s, she is one of the few left who still writes, records, and tours. Her ardent fan base has endured along with her. Through all of it, she and her music have remained unapologetically unique and personal. Today on Hidden Jukebox, Tori Amos' 1992 breakthrough album, Little Earthquakes. Oh, wow. we got so much to discuss here. First of all, like... If we if we have if we have any listeners, we're going to be getting some emails about this thing you said about not that many uh, female singer songwriters uh, of the '90s who are still around. Because I mean, like you know, uh, Annie Lennox still tours. I think does does she? I think so. And I I, I also if only there was one way to find I, out. I think of her as, as '80s. And so I did too. I, I was sure that I was going to look it up this morning and find that Annie Lennox's solo debut was like 1988. Nope, same year as this as uh, Little Earthquakes, 92. Well, here, here's what's funny is I started making a list when I was researching this episode and said that Tori arguably started the female singer-songwriter trend of the 90s. And I started putting together this list and I've got on the list Sarah McLaughlin, Sheryl Crow, Ani DeFranco, Alanis Morissette, Jewel, Paula Cole. But I tried to add Melissa Etheridge. Mm-hmm. Her career started before Tori Amos. Okay. I tried to add uh, somebody else really big like <laughs> when, that. When you say you tried to add, like you typed it and Google ate it? Uh, yeah, m- uh, more or less. Like, like me going, well, this person followed in Tori Amos' footsteps. And it was like, no, no, this person actually started before Tori Amos right. did. And even Tori started in 1987 with what I argue is a terrible band, why can't Tori read? Okay, so you put on the agenda that you thought Why Can't Tori Read was a terrible band, and I'm like, I have never actually listened to that album. So I listened to some of it yesterday. Not bad at all. Well, let let me also <laughs> the song add Pirates, in here. Pirates quite good. In the in the early '90s, it was very very difficult to track down these albums that Absolutely. you that you could somehow find out existed exactly but yes. weren't being remastered reissued reprinted and since there was very little demand for anybody to want to hear this you heard legends of this right. pop band that she had been in but you had no idea what it sounded like and you had no right. access to it and and in fact i would say it's not as different from this album as i expected there's a natural lead-in, although right. the acoustic piano of this album versus the, right, the synth synths. of Why Can't Tori Read, it's it's a marked difference. Yeah. Now, you discovered something else very interesting this week about Why Can't Tori Read. The the drummer, right? Yes. In, in Why Can't Tori Read was Matt Sorum, who was later in Guns N' Roses. Matt Sorum, who you may remember from such rock bands as That's right. Guns N' Roses. Yeah, do you and, think when he showed up for the uh, for the uh, audition, he, he had to like, like bring a resume? I, I, I'm just picturing him going, 
I'm the guy you want. Uh-huh. Check this out. Right. And puts on one hand Tori <laughs> let, me, let me just get this LP out of the sleeve. <laughs> what do you think of this album cover, by the way? <laughs> Can I, do you guys got an aux cable for my Walkman? Okay, so I, I am nervous about doing this album because I don't know how many people want to listen to two dudes talk about a Tori Amos album. I don't know if it's right to do it. And, you know, thinking back on part of the reason that I am glad we're doing this show is to be able to, like, go back and uh, and like kind of atone for how much of a sexist music listener I was in the 90s without realizing it. I mean, that's sort of like the the way the way, you know, sexism on a societal scale operates is like you can you can have the best of intentions and still be absolutely steeped in it without realizing it and so and so here's a story from the 90s so um in 1996 i believe i became friends with carla DeSantis, who is uh, was the publisher of rocker girl magazine i think i think i may have actually met her at lilith fair when we were both covering it and um, Rocker Girl was the first magazine devoted to uh, women in popular music, and its motto was "No beauty tips or guilt trips." Um, it started out as a zine that was that uh, you know she copied off on a photocopier, and uh, by the time I met her, she'd been publishing it for about a year, and it had graduated to like a black and white magazine with a glossy black and white cover. Um, I think the first uh, issue I read had the Geraldine Febbers on the cover. So hipster before hipsters existed. Yes. Uh, there were hipsters in the 90s. I was there. Um, and so here's how much of a jackass I was in the 90s. Carla asked me to write something for Rocker Girl, and I could not come up with any female artists to write about that they hadn't already covered recently. I was like, well, I love the Geraldine Febbers. You just wrote about them. Uh, let me think Let me think about it. And like, I never came up with anything and never wrote for them and uh she published it until 2005 and the complete archive of rocker girl is now part of the permanent collection of the smithsonian and the american women's history collection at harvard and uh i am not in there that, that's sad and incredible at the same time right and the point is like if if it had been a a, a general not not about uh women in uh, in rock magazine I could have come up with 17 obscure indie dudes that I would have wanted to highlight. Well, that that was going to be my argument to you is really if their focus was solely female performers, what were the odds that you were going to have discovered somebody that they hadn't already covered and say, here's somebody who, who you haven't heard of, especially with the Internet not really taking off yet? Well, I mean, the... The odds were low, but but the point is, like, you could say the same thing about, you know, a, a grunge zine, and I would have come up with something. So maybe your sexism was you weren't going to small female-fronted shows and right. discovering and, new people. And that's, and like, you know, and when I was thinking about the Tori Amos album, I'm like, okay, here's here's how this actually operated, which was, I remember when this album came out, like, I remember all the singles, and I remember thinking, this music isn't for me. You know, we were going to do Under the Pink, and mm-hmm. listening back to the, these two albums, I was the one who said Little Earthquakes was a better album, in my opinion. I just think it's catchier. I think it's got better hooks. And as a debut album, I think it is so strong. Yeah. And my first memories of listening to this are also steeped in sexism in that I was in middle school at the time and I had a lot of female friends. They started listening to Tori and as a male going through puberty and just like most males 
questioning sexuality and all these other things. Sure. Part of me said, I think I really like this music, but I don't want to admit it to any of my yeah, guy friends. Sure. So it took me a while to just say, I don't give a shit what anybody else says. This songwriting is really interesting and really amazing. Yeah, I I feel like like I was I should have been old enough to be over that at that point, but apparently I wasn't. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I I got into Under the Pink because my uh, college roommate, uh, my freshman year of college in 1993, James Dean, his real name, um, who uh, was Jimmy Dean. Uh, he was he was an out gay dude, and he loved Madonna and Tori Amos and Allison Boyer and. Uh, uh, Chrissy Hind and like all all of these great female singer songwriters and so I was exposed to them a lot and like it took me a while before like okay Cornflake Girl is a fucking amazing song it really is and and it, one of my only regrets is that we won't be covering that song or Past the Mission since mm -hmm. they're not on this album or God or God they're they're three fantastic songs yeah. um, I I agree with you overall I think this is a stronger album. Probably God and Cornflake Girl are my two favorite Tory songs. Well, we'll be covering a few songs here in a little bit oh, yeah. that, that kind of blow my mind in terms of the songwriting. But the story I wanted to tell was yeah. I got over the sexism really quickly and and started really embracing my love for her and got to see her in 1993 on the Under the Pink tour. <laughs> I know this story. Yes. <laughs> and as a 13-year-old uh, boy who had maybe kissed one girl by this point, I waited backstage after the show with my friends while my mom sat out front, our mom, mm -hmm. uh, in the van waiting for us for over an hour. Yep. And finally, Tori comes out of the backstage door. <laughs> mom and was literally waiting in the minivan. <laughs> yep. And, and everybody's screaming for her. And she walks by, and she's really cordial and shaking everybody's hand. And she shakes my hand, and uncontrollably, I just scream, I love you, Tori! And she stops, and she turns around, and she says, come here. And she gives me a kiss on the cheek. Aww. And I didn't wash that cheek for a month. <laughs> That's amazing. And and I still tell that story to people all the time. And, and it used to be like, you'd say, Tori Amos kissed me once, and people would go, Oh my God! And now yeah. you go. Tori Amos kissed me once, and people go, "Who cares?" What? Oh, come on! Those those people are too young. Most likely, yeah. It, it keeps me young. Yeah. So I think probably if you'd asked me at the time, I would have said like, "I'm not into this because it's not rock enough." But the my favorite album of '92, no question, automatic for the people, oh, yeah. does not exactly fucking ride the lightning. I I just headbang to that album every yes. time I listen to so, it. So so yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I try to do better. Well, let's dive into some music. Uh, yes, please. I, I want to start with my favorite track on the album by far, and this was the the track that I told you to listen to when you said, I'm not sure if I want to do Little Earthquakes. Uh, Precious Things. Run 
just it's so different from everything yes. that was coming out really i mean still everything that comes out i try to put myself in the seat of an a&r rep back in the day hearing this and going we can turn this into a hit yeah but it, i mean it's because like it it has it has the form of a pop song and it has a huge chorus a chorus that comes in too early for you, probably a little bit, but <laughs> but it's so it's so good. Like I'm I'm okay with it. So in in true Tori Amos fashion, uh, it's topics about being rejected, about uh, men mistreating her when yeah. she was younger, but it's such a driving song. So in 1990. Uh, Tori brought this to Atlantic Records, the the album without this song, about 10 tracks, and they rejected it. They said, we're just not hearing hits here. Right. Go back, write us a couple more songs. She decided to write four songs, and this was one of them. I love this kind of story. Like, that when a, when a, a songwriter is, like, put under pressure and they come up with the best thing. And, and supposedly, this is still her most played live song of mm-hmm. all time. It just is such a great song for an encore. It's so driving in terms of what she's doing on the piano. Yeah. And yet it's still very sparse. Like, it it doesn't have a ton going on outside of vocals and piano. Yeah. And the... I like how you know one of one of the characteristics of a, of a Tori Amos composition, I think, is that the piano parts are very busy. Yeah. Um, like you know, she she will sometimes do like you know like a piano ballad, you know, chord, 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 but really like you know she's she's using the piano like like sort of like like a you know a chicken picking piano. Well, it's it's really her trying to fill the space. I think. Yeah. Like it's it's why it's hard to arrange anything besides strings around her. Right. Is, she is filling so much of the void that other instruments normally would. Um, I have a story about uh, the album getting rejected. Um, so uh, in 2016, um, the Hollywood Reporter, this is this is uh, from an uh, uh, article in the Hollywood Reporter, they brought together uh, Tori Amos, Justin Timberlake, Alicia Keys, Pharrell, and Sting for a conversation. At one point, the interviewer asked Amos, were there moments when people were trying to guide you to be something different than who you felt authentic- authentically you were? She answered swiftly, Little Earthquakes was rejected when I turned it in. It was at that point that Timberlake told her, that album changed my life man so fucking good i just don't ever picture justin timberlake in in his early years listening to little earthquakes but stranger things have happened so um something that keeps coming to mind when we're talking about like how how her like songwriting and arrangements are so different and so unexpected and yet um she's been incredibly successful with them You, you know who is holding up that banner today is mitski Oh no, I don't know who that is. 
Oh, I am so excited for you. <laughs> okay. So, uh, Mitski is a, uh, a American singer-songwriter um, who, like, if you look at how a Mitski song is put together, you're like, th- none of these chords are in the same key. This this should not work. This does not make sense. I cannot get it out of my head. We're going to listen to some Be the Cowboy right after we're done with this. It's one of my favorite things ever. Sounds fantastic. Well, this song bring, brings up a point about that in that it's in 4-4 and most of the time as a trained musician, which I think this is the first time I've mentioned that I'm a trained musician on this show, <laughs> uh, I can listen to something, understand what's happening in the chord changes. Most Tori Amos songs, when I hear them, I have a lot of trouble understanding what she's doing. One thing that she does do in this song that I absolutely love is the chorus repeats itself. And the first time around, the first chord is minor. And the second time around, she she moves it to the relative major. Mm -hmm. And it gives these two completely separate feelings to the exact same repeated chorus. Take that, Eminem. (laughs) What? <laughs> Go back and listen to Eminem. All he does with choruses is one more time, and he does one chorus, and then the chorus repeated again. He does it formulaically over and over again. Okay, He's the king I mean, of that's, that. That's true. Is is Eminem like the only person who does it? Like the main no, but, guy who does that? But like the Marshall Mathers LP sold so many copies, right. and every yeah. single track on that album is is like it's true a repeated chorus. Okay. Um, let's, uh, let's listen to Me and a Gun. 5 a.m. Friday morning, Thursday night, far from sleep. I'm still up and driving, can't go home, obviously. So I'll just change direction. Cause they'll soon know where I live And I wanna live Got a full time and some chips With me and a gun And a man on my back And I sang holy holy As he buttoned down his pants You can laugh, it's kind of funny The things you think at times like these Like I haven't seen Barbados So I must get out of this Okay, so I knew we couldn't talk about this album without talking about this song And I think this is part of what, you know if you if you go back and listen to our our favorite grunge dudes, which we do, which we did last time, um, you know there there's a lot of songs about kind of uh, you know issues issues outside of themselves, like general dissatisfaction with society, and a lot of songs about how like you know I'm just uh, bored and angsty and don't know what to do with my life. The a Tori Amos album has songs about actual things. Um, and, you know, very disturbing, upsetting things, like uh, real things that I think I was not really ready to uh, ready to grapple with that these are real things that happen to real people. And 
I, I knew a guy who said that his favorite song was Big Star's Holocaust. Do you know that song? I do know that song. Okay, and, and he could never listen to it because it's just so upsetting. Why pick that as your favorite song then? I mean, it is a good song. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I understood what he meant. But to me, that's like saying Schindler's List is my favorite movie of all time <laughs> and I can never watch it again. That would make sense to me, too. I guess it would. Like, you know, like it like it affected me profoundly. Like, you know, it's it's a very emotional experience. Like the, the art did its work and like it's hard to go through that. Well, here's what's interesting about this song to me is when speaking about A&R reps and them rejecting this album initially and not finding a hit when they finally released the album, they released it in the UK first because apparently UK listeners had more eclectic tastes than sure. people in the United States, so they tried to market it there first. And the first single that they released in 1991 was this. Yeah. So the first time that anybody in the UK really heard Tori Amos was just her vocals, no piano, singing about... Rape. Rape. Yeah. Um, bold choice. Really bold choice. And as an a rep, how do you go... We, fo- we found a hit, and we know how to market you. This is it. I don't know. It didn't work, right? It. I mean, that's not what, what threw her into popularity, right. certainly. M- one of my very first memories of Tori Amos was there was a afternoon MTV show. I can't remember the name of it now. And one of their bits was that they would premiere a new artist, and people could basically thumbs right. up or thumbs down. Sure. And they debuted Tori with her doing a live performance of Smells Like Teen Spirit. Oh, sure, I remember Which that. is easy to find now. Yeah. And sorry to all the listeners out there, because I do love Tori Amos. It's terrible. It's not great. And, and it was released well before Kurt died, so it wasn't like a tribute or anything like that. It was just, hey, here's another interpretation of this song, and the audience just panned it. Absolutely yeah, hated it, and and I remember seeing it live when when they did this and going, well, there's somebody who's never going to be a star, right? And I imagine being in the UK, hearing me in a gun, going, that's an album I'm not going to buy, right? And and it it was a strange choice, but it wasn't the first single that was released in the United States. The first single released in the United States was Silent All These yeah. Years, and and yet, I mean, that I think you are thinking about it from your perspective. Um, you know, I think if if this was something that spoke to me and my experience and I had never heard anything like that on the radio before, I might go out and buy that album. That's that's a risk that. Yeah, that absolutely. La- labels are more likely to take that nowadays, in my opinion, because they right. don't know what the hell to do anymore. But back then they seemed to know it was marketable and, and it still seems like a very strange choice. Yeah. Um, so let- you know who you didn't put on your list of female singer songwriters, Suzanne Vega. Suzanne Vega was before Tori right. Amos. Um, ninety nine point nine nine Fahrenheit degrees is is the nineties, right? I think it was nineteen ninety. Okay, we have to do that album. It's uh, fantastic. It, it is a great album, but but I was trying to put a follow in her footsteps oh, type of list together. I, I know, and I'm and I was saying like no, but also she was following in the footsteps of Tracy Chapman and Suzanne Vega. Is all is all I was trying to it's, say. It's true, but but Tori, what what I really came what it really came down to after listening to this album again, listening to Under the Pink again, is 
it wasn't that people were following in her footsteps or that she was following right, in anybody's course. footsteps. What she was doing was so unique because yeah. m- most of these other performers were not classically trained pianists yeah. who happened to be wanting to write pop songs and get into the pop culture. It. She was so unique as a performer on her own and still is. Yeah. Um, nowadays, you have to be a classically trained flutist like Lizzo. I, I prefer for it to be pronounced flautist. Flautist. Actually. Sorry. Why yeah. did I say flutist? I, we'll I don't cut know. That part. I, I, I got I to be honest. It's it's kind of driving me crazy that I'm calling her Tori Amos and you're calling her Tori Amos. And I don't know which one of us is right. I don't know right. This is, is exactly what I was afraid was going to happen, that I was going to say something dumb like flutist. <laughs> All right, what should we listen to next? Uh, Let's listen to Silent All These Years. Excuse me, but can I be you for a while? My dog won't bite if you sit real still. I got the Antichrist in the kitchen yelling at me again. Yeah, I can hear Been saved again by the garbage truck I got something to say, you know But nothing comes Yes, I know what you think of me You never shut up Yeah, I can hear that But what if I'm a mermaid In these jeans of hers With her name still on it Hey, but I don't care Cause sometimes I said Sometimes I hear my voice And it's been So is that the chorus, or is the or is the big part that comes up the chorus? I, I think that what, was the chorus. That's what's so confusing about uh-huh. Tori Amos songs a lot of the time. This it, song is terrific. It is, it is so interesting, especially the intro, the way that she's doing this minor to major thing, mm-hmm. and then when the vocals come in, it you you're expecting them on the downbeat that yep, the song yep. starts with. She and, does that a lot, and it doesn't come in there. Th- this is part of what I was talking about with her still confusing the hell out of me, even though I'm trained in classical theory. It would take me a while to sit down and go, what is she doing here? Because without a backbeat, without drums to anything, it's all almost interpretive in terms of when and what she wants to do. Um, and that that chromatic piano riff that it's almost like like an exercise that you would teach like a beginning piano student that is that is deployed to amazing effect here. But it's so catchy. I know. Like using this as the opening single in the United States ended up working really yeah. well. And I think it's because of the way the song builds. It starts yep. with, with almost this exercise and then you're introduced to her vocals and then these string arrangements. She produced this album with her boyfriend at the time, Eric Rossi. And so a lot of what you hear on this is not a record company going here's what we want from you. Right. It's them saying, here's how we interpret these songs ourselves. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if it's her or the record label that wanted to really put forth her voice and her piano playing. But you look at the singles picked off of this, off this album and not off Thunder the Pink so much, but right. this album, and they're not really using the songs where they include drums and bass and guitar. They were 
putting out the songs that highlight her voice and her piano. Yeah, I think maybe in that same Hollywood Reporter article, um, she was saying that they, they the label asked her to replace some of the piano with guitar. <laughs> and she was like, no. She's like, I, I don't play guitar. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, they could supply someone, but that would not have worked. Well, and and it's interesting the way that when the guitar comes in on this album, it is used in like that section of Precious Things mm-hmm. as almost a strange tonal addition rather than let's throw in a guitar solo here or let's do some crunchy chords as backing for this. It's used the way you might like sprinkle in a little piano on a guitar-driven album. Exactly. Right? It's, it, it's like they're turning everything on its head, yes. and it's really, really cool. Um, one, th- I want to talk about something about uh, the vocals, I mean, in general and on this song, which is that um, she makes very good use of uh, what is now termed vocal fry, um, and, and which is something that people talk about as if it originated in like, you know, 2009 or something, um, but has been a part of, you know, vocal spoken and and sung vocal technique for for vocalists of all genders, probably for millennia. Yeah. Um, and it's, for some reason, dudes on the Internet decided to start complaining about it fair, relatively recently. And I don't know why they complain about it. It's a textural thing. Right. It's a technique. Yeah, and when when you see her live, she really, really plays up mm-hmm. what she does with her voice. Her shows are extremely live. They're they're not heavily produced things like going to see Lady Gaga's. Her and a piano mm-hmm. and some backing musicians, and she will play with times of things. She will take pauses to talk about things in the middle of songs. It's it's her kind of having fun with the audience and playing up the interesting parts of the songs. Yeah. So she she uses that vocal fry even more when you see her live. Taking the taking dynamics low, taking dynamics really high. Yeah, that that's what I was was I was going to say too that like much more so than than you would hear on like a I don't want to generalize too much but like you know pop vocal performances I feel are much more dynamically compressed these days than what you hear on this like her voice almost drops out sometimes. Well, like in the middle of a phrase, she had to figure out a way to create dynamics with just her and a piano. Now, a piano is the most dynamic instrument there is. It, you know, it's got weighted keys so you can play really light, really heavy. But the way that she differentiates a chorus from a verse is often just how heavy she's playing and how heavy she's singing. Right. And she's very, very good at creating these textures with the piano and with her voice and kind of creating these different parts of the songs, like what we're talking about in Silent All These Years, where what is the chorus, you know, right. what is the verse, does it really even matter? Yeah. Um, I want to listen to Leather to discuss the, the guitar use on this album a little bit more. Look, I'm standing naked before you. Don't you want more than sex I can scream as loud as your last one but I can't claim innocence oh God could it be the weather the weather 
Okay, with the go, go ahead. Say what you want to say about the guitar. I'm so much here. Not just the the chromatic descending line mm-hmm. that they decide to throw on all of a sudden in the second chorus, but the way that it cuts off before, That's what I was the, say before the end of That's the second so chorus. It's so wild. It it's like what are they doing in the studio that makes them go cut it off right here? Yes. But Oh man! And before that, the lushness of bringing in the strings yep. is so so cool. It's again this way that she builds songs together that is so unique. And what I was saying about her being an enigma, people don't write like this now, except maybe this obscure band that you mentioned. <laughs> Mitski is a solo artist, but okay. Yeah. Also, also, like, she easily sold out Showbox Soto. Also, she's probably listening to this right now and yeah, going, yeah, you I'm son sure. of a bitch. Uh, Thanks a lot, Jake. That's her catchphrase. I'm, I'm coming to find you and we're covering your album when you start doing a show about 2017, 2018, 2019 artists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so there's a lot going on in this song, but the way that she uses guitar as texture in this is... Uh, I love the line, I can scream as loud as your last one. She's really trying to push this whole, I'm a sexual creature Mm -hmm. and I don't need you. I can be on my own perfectly fine. I feel like the the melodic progression of this song owes something to musical theater more so than, than the other songs that we've listened to so far. I don't know enough about musical theater to like point at what it is. But huh. I I mean I I hate to admit this I am not a fan of musical theater. I I'm not generally a fan of musical theater either, but other people in my family are and so I've heard quite a lot of it. Yeah. And I can see where you're coming from, but trying to put my finger on right. what it is about this, I don't know. My yeah. my other choice for a song on this album I think is almost more musical theaterish than this song is. Is it uh, Happy Phantom? It is. All right, let's let's go ahead. And if I die today, I'll be the Happy Phantom. And I'll go chasing the nuns out in the yard. And I'll run naked through the street with all my mask on. And I will never need umbrellas in the rain. I wake up in strawberry feet every day And the atrocities of school I can't forgive The happy phantom has no right to bitch Okay, I was about to say this is probably my least favorite song on the album, but then that the sun is getting dim. I, I love that part. I love so much about about this song, like what they're doing with the percussion on it mm-hmm. and finally throwing some bass into the album. Yep. Um, is that an upright bass? I don't know. Yeah. It, it sounds more electric to me, okay. um, but it's being used so sparsely, I, I'm not sure. And then the idea of 
a topic about being dead and being a ghost. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it is fun with with this this upbeat feeling, but just just the playfulness of it that reminds me of musical theater. Like, oh yeah, for like, sure. Hey Johnny, you want to go stroll through this cemetery together? <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> Literally. Woohoo! <laughs> she she's got quite a vocal range yeah, on her. Like uh-huh. like I I mean I haven't seen a live performance of her in years, but I kind of wonder if she can still do this this album and sing it the way that she did. That's back a good then. question. I think the last album of hers that I that I like listened to a bunch was Unrepentant Geraldine's, which was 20, 2014. And I mean, I, I think her vocal range is very much intact on that record. So I want to discuss something with you a little bit, which, okay. which is, is this album timeless? I, I feel like we try to cover albums on this show a lot that people still listen to and celebrate a ton. And well, she still has a lot of popularity and extremely loyal fo- followers. She hasn't had a million selling album, I don't think, since Boys for Pele. And it's, but like, I mean, what you know, is Pearl Jam still selling a million albums? Th- I, I understand Pearl Jam is still an extremely popular band, but like, I, I think I think you're kind of rolling several different questions into one. Okay, my my real point isn't how popular she is now, so much as. I listened back to this, and it feels a little bit early 90s to me. Here is my theory on this. I I agree with you. I think what I am hearing is a very particular early 90s digital reverb. So I I am not positive. It could turn out that someone's going to write in and say, no, this was all like natural room or like, you know, they brought in like a classic plate reverb on this or something. But what I think is going on is, you know, they had an early TC electronic box or something like that that has a very particular sound that no one is going to like listen and identify it as that. But digital reverb has gotten enormously better since then and more transparent and so particularly like on the drums and strings i think you are hearing you know re- reverb that's 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 shitty in kind of a particular way that that ties it to this time period well i hate to say it but it wasn't even the production that i was thinking about it's okay. it's the songwriting that that i'm thinking about but it might just be the uniqueness of her we didn't pick crucify as a song that we were going to listen yeah, although to. like i kept changing which songs i was going to play like right up until the last minute and and crucify is it, it's one of these songs that's got full instrumentation and i just think it it's like if she rearranged the song today she would com- do it completely differently because it sounds yeah, that that's interesting. Very early '90s ish in terms of the arrangement, not so much as the production, and maybe yeah, partially right. the production because of synths on it. It it's like when you say this was a natural progression from "Why Can't Tori Read." I think mainly of that song, "Crucify." Yeah. Well, okay, then why don't we listen to some of it? Courage, which used to sell out now. I've been looking for a savior in these dirty streets. 
I think, I think this is a, a song that, that kind of needs to be rescued from its producer. I think that drum sound is terrible. It's terrible. And and they're doing something with her vocals yeah. at the beginning when she comes in that's a doubling or something that yeah. that just sounds very, very I mean, I bet there me. are other versions, not, not like fully produced studio versions, but I bet you can like sift through live and like, you know, in-store versions and stuff. You know, one of the things that I meant to do this week that I forgot to is see if with all the things that people do today on YouTube, if anybody had taken me in a gun and put harmonies behind it and sure. and written music underneath it. You you mean like DNA and Suzanne Vega style, yes, right? Yes, ex- exactly. Probably. There, there must be something like that somewhere out there because... It's interesting to hear an acapella song and be able to almost pick out what the music would sound like underneath it, but then somebody somebody's interpretation could be completely different from your own. Yeah, definitely. So w- one of the last things that I wanted to discuss about this album, which there's no way that we can come up with a real answer to it, Sure, is what percentage of the purchasers of this album originally and and even today were women it's it, it, it's something that that is not tracked um, right it's a metric that they don't keep track of at all but was a large amount of her popularity due to the fact that she was a female performer and and a lot of singer songwriters from that day that were female were they making most of their money off of women or were men buying their albums so I don't know the answer to that question. I think I think like another way of asking that is like is the music market less stratified by gender now than it was in the 90s and I think the answer is probably yes. And probably someone has studied this. I don't I, think we're going to get numbers for this exact release though. No, but but what I think about is there's this really famous picture that probably somebody just made up online sure. of of a set of bathrooms at a Rush concert. <laughs> yeah, I and, get it. And it's a line of men, like 40 long, waiting to get in the bathroom, and then a shot of the women's bathroom, and it's completely empty. Right. And, and it's true. It's like, you don't meet a lot of females where you go, well, what's your favorite band? Rush. Yeah. Love Rush. They're, they're my thing. And you don't, like, if you ask a lot of guys, you know, Guys who are listening to this podcast, write in. Tell us what you think of this album. Tell tell us. Yeah, it's about time we get the the, the opinions of men on the internet for once. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I was gonna play Winter, but you know, you already know Winter. Like it's it's the it's the one with uh, when you're gonna make up your mind. <laughs> like I feel like that's the one of all of these that like if you feel like maybe I've never heard Tori Amos, um, like and you hear that chorus, you're like oh okay yeah I know that song. But that that speaks to how catchy the choruses were on this album. Yeah. Versus Under the Pink, Under the Pink had really really interesting songwriting and some catchy choruses, but it feels like almost every song on this album has a really catchy chorus to it. Yeah. She was trying to write hooks, which is why it's surprising to me that she brought this album to the label and they said, uh, we're not hearing anything yet. And the songs that she added never wound up being singles. Which, so, uh, like, uh, 
Precious Things was that one of them? Precious Things right. was, was one of them. Uh, I think Little Earthquakes was actually one of them. Like the album wasn't called Little Earthquakes when when she first did. Yeah, did and it. that was going to be one of my picks. Also, like, yeah, I think I kind of cycled through every song on the record because Little Earthquakes is very good. It's so weird. Yeah, it is such a weird song. But Silent All These Years was already on the album. Yeah, and and that's what they ultimately went with. Yeah. So who who knows what they were hearing? Maybe they went to somebody different at the time. Uh, maybe Justin Timberlake at age twelve was like. I, yes. think, I think you got to sign this chick. <laughs> right. And you should call it just Facebook, not the Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Those were his two pieces of advice. And that's why he's a multimillionaire. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, and also put your dick in a box. <laughs> that guy gives great advice. Oh, my God. Okay. Uh, anything else? Uh I was really happy going back to listen to this because I, I was too. A, a lot of the albums that we've covered so far, maybe outside of TLC, are albums that I've continuously listened to over the years. And this is an album that I listened to incessantly for a long time and have not revisited in at least 15 years. Um, this, I, I don't know if I've I ever listened to this album straight through before working on this episode. It's, it's so good. And I, and I will again. Yeah. Um, okay, you can find us online at uh, hiddenjukebox.com and uh, facebook.com slash hiddenjukebox. We want to know what you think of, uh, of of the Tori Amos oeuvre. One, one thing I'd be curious to hear is, like, periodically I will put on a, a Tori album that I haven't listened to because she has a lot of albums, and there will be one song that I'm like, whoa, I'm, I'm glad to add this song to, to my uh, Spotify favorites. Uh, one of them being uh, America, the first song on Unrepentant Geraldine yeah. is, is great. Um, if there's if there's a Tory song outside her most famous albums that you think uh, that you would like to highlight, please let us know. Until next time, I'm Jake Amster. And I'm Matthew Amster Burton, and I'm going to take us out on Mitski's A Pearl from Be the Cowboy. Yes. You're growing tired of me. You love me so hard, and I still I don't talk about